Hi everybody, Becky Carson here, and if you are listening to this, it means that you probably just finished your first week of primary care pediatrics, so congratulations on making it through the newborn unscathed. I'm going to call this week Feedback is a Gift, and I know you're probably rolling your eyes at that, but let me explain. So I went to Johns Hopkins for my Doctor of Nursing practice degree, and my program director was Dr. Mary Terhar, and she is a brilliant nurse scholar with so much wisdom, and she was an amazing writer. And I spent those years of my life just taking feedback one after the other after the other, and when you think you can't take it anymore, there's more telling you that you need to do better, you need to fix this, change this, and it's exhausting. It doesn't really feel like a gift. But remember that you're in the phase of your career where you're doing nothing but taking feedback. It makes you sometimes feel a little bit incompetent, but you're not. You're just getting better and better and better. And think back at everything that you've learned so far. Embracing that feedback as a gift is the mentality where you've got to humble yourself and realize that you're making yourself better with every iteration. And realize that I have been in that exact same seat and actually two others because I got a postmasters in pediatric acute care and that doctoral program. So I've done it three times and it helped me get better and it's going to help you get better. So I'm not giving you this to really drill it into you, although I would love for you to take every ounce of it in that you can. Just remember that it's not meant to make you feel incompetent. It's meant to make you better. Okay, so let's talk about how things went this week. I thought you guys overall did a pretty good job knowing that the newborn is probably the hardest content that we have. So in the hyperbilirubinemia cases, I just want to give a, a slow clap to all the people who wanted to order a total indirect bilirubin on the patients. There were some cases where it really wasn't necessary, but if you took the advice of our expert from this week, Dr. Orkin, she told us that you should never second guess yourself when ordering a bilirubin. And when you're ordering a total, always grab a direct. So everybody got full credit for the that question. And then when there were technical issues with the nomograms, I'm just about as tech savvy as you guys are. So my tricks are clicking around in a program and restarting the computer. I certainly didn't count off for anybody not being able to figure out how to get the nomograms. But I wanted you to have that experience and that practice of clicking through and, um, and figuring out where we plot a patient's bilirubin on the chart based on their risk factors. I want you to make sure that you go back to those guidelines, print them out, and deeply understand them as you're continuing to study for the midterm and your board's exams. So uh, let's move on to our clinical conundrum. I gave you the question of a four-day-old neonate comes into your office two days after discharge from the hospital. Which of the following newborns is the most concerning to you? Is it a late preterm newborn born at 36 weeks gestation? A term newborn who's 39 weeks gestation born to a mother who was GBS positive and did not receive intrapartum antibiotics prior to her vaginal delivery? 
a G1, P1 mom of a 37 and a half week gestation newborn that's exclusively breastfeeding since birth, or a Coombs positive newborn that had a bilirubin of 12.5 at 48 hours of life prior to discharge home. So each of these was concerning in their own ways. That's why we're calling it a clinical conundrum. A majority of you answered that you were most concerned either about the baby who was GBS positive mother and uh, didn't get any intrapartum antibiotics, or you were worried about the Coombs patient who had a billy of 48 hours, where we know that that billy is going to peak around day four or five. So certainly that could be a potentially concerning case there on the day that you're seeing them. For that late preterm infant who's 36 weeks, we just get a little bit of information on that patient to make you worry. We know that these kids can have difficulty with feeding, temperature regulation, they have immature livers and can have hyperbilirubinemia, just to name a few of the issues. So, But the idea was to consider all of these circumstances, knowing that none of them was ideal, much less perfect. And I thought that you all had really smart, really thoughtful, and knowledgeable answers. So I was very impressed with that. Let's talk a little bit about infant nutrition and the newborn case. I thought you guys had great answers to the newborn case, and I loved the way that you would talk with the parents as they're kind of figuring out how to welcome this new baby into the world. There are some tips and tools and tricks that you're going to come across as you're in clinical and as you kind of move into your own clinical acumen. But as a parent of a young child, I realized that there was a wonderful tool out there to help both my husband and I help care for our baby. But then I thought, do pediatricians recommend this? Because they should. So there's an app called Sprout, and there are a lot of different kinds. Um, This is a feeding app. So uh, for those of you who are monitoring the breastfeeding of a patient, monitoring the stool output or the urine output, the weights, this app has it all. And you can input this information into it to get great objective information at how an infant is doing. The mom clicks the app when she puts the baby on the breast and times it and then does the same thing with the other breast. You can also document a bottle feed, how long it took, the volume that the baby took, like I said, the amount of wet diapers, stool diapers, and then their height, weight, head circumference over time. My husband and I use this in our little one because he had some growth issues and it's been a wonderful tool. I always love objective data. So if we can recommend this or something similar to parents who are maybe having trouble feeding at home and we're just wanting to really assess what's going on, that's something great that you guys can pass along to families. I thought you guys had great advice on how to support the mom in breastfeeding. Some of those common issues to kind of let her know about so that she can be ready for them and anticipate them or even prevent them. So sore nipples, using lanolin cream to um, help ease the discomfort, making sure that she's not engorged and maybe even using some hand expression or pump to settle that out before getting the baby able to latch. Sometimes a baby can't even get to the nipple if the breast is so engorged that the baby is just uncomfortable and they can get really frustrated too. 
I loved the person who recommended that uh, the dad could use a bottle of pumped milk to bond with the baby, give the mom a break, but still be able to use breast milk. Um, One of the features of breastfeeding that happens early is that the opposite side will often drain before the mom has really gotten established in her milk supply. So if we can catch that in, they have these, I think they're called hookahs um, or hukka, something like that. Um, If you can catch that draining milk, that is a perfect feed for dad to get to participate in and can really, really help with the infant bonding. Be aware that for babies who are breastfed and bottle fed or both, that parents might need to try out different bottles and nipples. The baby industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. So while you might become opinionated in one way or another, realize that babies are just as different as the nipples that they are feeding from. And every woman's breasts are different. So parents might need to try out some different bottles, different nipples to see what really works. If I were you, I would let the parents do the Googling, let them search on Amazon for the best nipples for breastfed babies and let them give you their opinion. And then you can take it along with the opinions of all your other patients and use that to guide future visits. Okay, so now let's move on to things that are going to come up next week. I'm still getting questions about the clinical notes, so let's just address a couple of things because I I think you guys are nervous about this task. Don't be nervous because you're going to be doing a lot of these. It's going to be okay, and you're going to write awesome notes, and you're going to do it every single day for the rest of your career. So let's talk about a couple of things. The physical exam that you guys were putting in your newborn case study was great for some of you and underwhelming for others. Remember that your physical exam on a baby is going to change from month to month and what we expect you to write down changes also. So you need to know pediatric anatomy and physiology. You need to know what's normal and when it's normal. You need to know what we're particularly looking for. And there are some good online resources, uh, especially from the AAP and especially in your Bright Futures, that can really help you pick out what I'm looking for and when. So a good example would be don't ever document a newborn exam without looking at the anus. There are babies who are born without them, and it is a very big faux pas to miss that. So your documentation of a newborn exam should always in the GU section include um, patent anus. Don't miss that. However, if you were to document that this patient had a patent anus at one month, that would be silly. The same goes for other things. Make sure that you're always documenting the fontanelles in our newborns. How are their sutures? Are they overriding? Is the fontanelle soft and flat? Um, Is there any plagiocephaly? But if you're documenting that on a four-year-old, I would be confused because four-year-olds don't have fontanelles. That changes. And then think about like the Ortolani and Barlow. 
you should absolutely be documenting those, but it becomes the wrong exam to use at four months of age. So you have to understand what the patient is going to be going through, document from head to toe. We typically are thinking that it's gonna start with a general and then go H-E-N-T, chest, lungs, cardiovascular, GIGU, musculoskeletal, skin, and neurologic. Use your bright futures to guide you. Talk to your preceptor and read their notes. And then let's talk about what goes in the HPI for a well child check. You can think of the HPI, right, so this is history of present illness, as more of an interval history in your well child check. What's been going on since the last time I saw you? What constitutes health in a child? Their diet, how they're peeing and pooping, their sleep, their socialization, their safety. Has there been new and recent stuff that's been going on? Did they start daycare? Has there been the birth of a sibling? Was there a recent illness? This could certainly turn into a sick visit as well where you are also gathering an HPI, but think of it more on terms of the interval history. That's the really the best way because we're documenting wellness since the last visit. Know your four domains of development. So this is gross motor, fine motor, speech, and cognitive. And there's also a fifth one that's like a social emotional behavioral, but I, I think of the other four as far more important to be noting. So most of you were not head on with documenting the development in the newborn case. And so I wanna go over that a little bit more. This is gonna change obviously from week to week as they're really little and then month to month as babies get bigger. And development is one of those pivotal things in primary care pediatrics where we are understanding that the child is growing well, developing appropriately based on these milestones. It's not enough just to say that they're meeting their milestones. We need to talk about specifics. So let's talk about the newborn. So the newborn, from a gross motor perspective, should move in response to visual or auditory stimuli, reflexively move their arms and legs symmetrically, and they should have a neural moro and tonic neck reflex. From a fine motor standpoint, they'll keep their hands in a fist, and then they'll automatically grasp another object or a person's fingers when you put it in their hand. From a speech perspective, they're going to communicate their discomfort with crying and facial grimace and expressions. They are going to have um, body movements, uh, movements of their arms and legs, and calm to a parent's voice. From a cognitive and social perspective, they're going to have periods of wakefulness. They're going to look and stare into their parents' eyes when they're awake and looking at them. They're going to calm when they're picked up and respond to soothing touch differently than they would an alerting touch. So all these things should be questions that you're asking the parent about. You have to know what the milestones are and ask the parent, is your child doing this? And then when they say yes, you document it. 
it's a lot to learn and don't be afraid to have a checklist with you as you're going into clinical and learning what's normal. It's so important to learn normal before we can recognize abnormal. So as the week comes up next week, we're adding in some lit reviews, which is gonna be super fun. I've already seen some of the articles that are coming out. And so I think we're gonna have a great discussion as group one tells us their interesting finds from the literature. And then we pick apart as a group, how good are these studies? Should we be changing our practice based on them? And what are the implications of this study? I will look forward to hearing from you guys via email uh, and on Blackboard. Be sure to let me know if you have any questions and otherwise I will see you online. Have a great week.